Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high-performance innovation and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, and I'm speaking from London, UK. And in this episode, we're talking to a very experienced tech leader and CTO of a company in an intriguing market that I didn't even realise existed. Our guest, Ben Birdsell, is here to tell us about his journey and enlightening stories. So let's not delay. Let's get Ben into the space. Welcome, Ben. Welcome to CTO Confessions Podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you. Brilliant. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Who do you work for? And what do you do? Right. So I'm Ben Birdsell. I'm the um, CTO at a company called Sport Radar, which is a, a B2B um, data streaming company in the sports domain. Brilliant. Excellent. And just out of curiosity, I mean, the, the company that, that you are working for at the moment, what's the problem that is solving the market? Because, I mean, it's quite an intriguing little niche that you're working in there. Well, we're actually solving quite a few problems, and that's part of the challenge about Sport Radar, which I'm sure we'll get onto. It's like, it, it's, it's not one thing. I think in its origins, it was very much focused on being a, a data streaming company, so sports data. So whether um, somebody in Africa kicks the ball um, and it's going to lead to a penalty or an offside or, or whatever it is, um, we would report that data in, in very um, low latency. Um, now, I mentioned soccer. Soccer is obviously a, a big sport, but we cover um, way over sort of 50 different sports maybe sort of eight, around 800,000 different games um, wow. in a, a year. So everything from soccer to Kabaddi to the American sports, you know, we'll be covering that action um, live and streaming the data and then a whole set of series of I would call value-added services on top of that. So wow. who's going to win a game is probably one of, the, one of the questions or data points that people are quite interested in. Fantastic. I mean, so you're actually streaming the actual games as well as collecting the data. Well, yes, I mean, it depends on the game and the venue, but when I say streaming, I mean, streaming of data can come in different sizes and formats. So right. most people may think about um, streaming on video. Um, and yes, we do do that for certain big tournaments. And it's about having low latency video streams, you know, which which won't buffer, you know, because if you, you know, nobody wants to see their game kind of yeah. pause in the, in the middle of the action. But also it's a streaming of data. I mean, there's, you know, hundreds of data points we can collect um, about a game relating to the position of the players on the pitch, relating to their velocity, their trajectory, and then more high value things like what's happening. Has it been a goal? Has it been an um, offside penalty? Is it attacking play? Is it defensive play? You know, streaming of data, as I say, comes in all different um, shapes and sizes. Is it kind of like real time or kind of pseudo real time? Yeah, it has to be um, um, super quick. Anything more than a few seconds, I mean, it's, it's, it's too old for some use cases. Um, one of the main reasons for this is that, you know, obviously people do like, depending on the jurisdiction, do like to bet on on um, on games. And what may not be obvious to everybody um, is most of the betting is done during the game and not before the game. Wow. So, yeah. you know, there's a temptation, I'm sure, for some people who may not be totally honest to be sitting um, watching a live match, you know, in a venue. Um, on the phone um, to a friend who's who's standing there in the bookmaker, you're about to make that 
waiting for that just moment where they can make a what's called what we call a sure bet. When they kind of know the outcome, what's going to happen, you know, you know, the goalkeeper just, you know, falling over his his football boots, leaving a wide go. go you know, it's a pretty high chance that's going to be a goal in the next few seconds. Wow. And so we've got to be quicker than that. So we've got to be quicker than that to make sure that the um, the situation isn't taken advantage of. Fantastic. This sounds yeah, exciting stuff. One of the things I was looking at, Ben, was your kind of journey up until this point here. You've had quite an interesting adventure, I would say, you know, uh, as you've gone along. Any kind of highlights? What what what, what have you learned on your kind of uh, great journey that you've had so far? Well, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, I, I started off in, in in sort of management consulting, um, worked for some you know great companies like um, Anderson Consulting, which then became Accenture. Um, other less known companies, um, Diamond, and basically in management consultancies. And I think the great thing about those companies is not necessarily the companies themselves, but the ability to work with um, clients and customer companies throughout your whole career. So you get to see an awful lot of companies in an awful lot of locations, you know, and it's sort of, sort of various things that happen along the way so i don't think i it's, i think it's very hard to say but you know could i predict that i would have ended up at sport radar absolutely not mm. could i predict if i was going to end up in some kind of um sort of technical um role i think absolutely i think that's that die is cast fairly early on in my career in terms of what i like and what makes me tick right. um so i would say to all your listeners just enjoy the journey and you know in the beginning of your career to try to sort of open doors rather than close doors to, to discover because what you start doing the only thing you can be sure of is that's not what you're going to end up doing you know 20 years later fantastic and we're going to come we'll dig a little bit deeper into that as well you know the kind of um advice to aspiring tech leaders as how you can do that and there was mention offline around lehman brothers uh, you kind of did a, a stint uh, on, yes. on a project for them yeah, so, so I was running their IT department um, for a couple of years, and this is when um, Lehman Brothers was in administration, as you remember, yeah. you know, during the sort of, you know, 2008-2009 sort of kind of, um, you know, great crash, so to speak. Um, Lehman Brothers was one of the, the, the victims, and without talking about specifics, you know, it was a very successful bank, um, but found itself in a difficult situation. And I think the, challenge, the unique challenge at Lehman Brothers is like, was, well, how do you keep a team motivated? Because funny enough, we still had systems to build, even though that we're in administration. Administration took over five years, if I remember wow. correctly. So you, know, you can't just turn off a bank. It takes a long time to, to give back money, to find money, um, get people to give money when they don't want to give it. Um, it's a complex, you know, collateralized debt is, is, is a complex business. Mm -hmm. And I guess the challenge is, is like, how do you motivate the team when the only thing you know is that there's not going to be a great outcome for the company. The company is closing, but still you've got to get work done. Still, you need to give people rewarding careers. And I think through that experience, you know, I learned quite a lot and hopefully my team learned something too. Yeah, yeah. And, and any kind of highlights, any real kind of big takeaways that you'd like to share with our audience as to how you manage that? Because I mean, that sounds like a really tough situation. It was, it was a horrible situation uh, with people's kind of feelings kind of kicking around the space. So I think you've got to put the, the person first, you know, um, oft, often, you know, we talk about FTEs and that kind of depersonalize it. I've even heard people talk about carbon units, you know, instead of FTEs, but it's hardly better. It's hardly better, is it? So I think in these situations, you've got to put the person first, the individual first. You think, well, you know, what, what's in it for them? And, 
you might make different technical decisions which you wouldn't normally make. I mean, one of the themes I would say in a classical company, you know, re relating to architecture, is that you don't try to have your application architecture look like a, a museum where you have one of every single different type of technology that doesn't need to mm. you know, lower cost of ownership and all these good things. But, you know, at Lehman Brothers, I think what we would do is, you know, try to have a variety of, of different um, architecture and technology choices to ensure that the people who were staying until the, the curtain closed, so to speak dramatically, to make sure that they were trained up in the latest technologies and the latest technology stacks. Mm. So that when they hit the market, they hit the mar market not knowing what the bank used to do, but knowing what the market kind of needs in terms of tech stacks, in terms of open source softwares and frameworks. So we would allow a certain amount of diversity in technical choice just to make sure that the people um, got exposure to a wide range of technologies, which they wouldn't normally do in a classical situation, I would say. Yes. And I'm kind of curious around what exactly happened as you're turning off the switch of a bank. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, having worked in a bank myself, there's a lot of technologies, a lot of data, there's lots of systems from software integrations and what have you. Um, um, was it a case of you had to still do some development to kind of maintain the kind of closing arc? No, totally, because what we find is that, and I'm going to speak generally rather than specifics, maybe um, in some cases, um, just to avoid the lawyers on my back. Um, <laughs> yeah, banks are generally very good at um, building systems that um, keep hold of people's money. They're, they're, they're less good about building systems that gives gives out money, um, to, just, to talk flippantly. And what you had in the case of Lehman's is that you had a lot of like, um, you know, debt, um, across all different types of parties, you know, people on the other end of these com very complex, um, you know, commercial contracts. And it was trying to work out, it's trying to unravel, you know, um, thousands and thousands of these contracts to say, you know, who owned the money. So it wasn't about Lehman getting the money back for himself. It's, it's mainly getting, you know, making sure that the counterparties ended up with the right amount of money and we collected money on behalf of other peoples. And actually, sort of, you know, it's, it's very forensic, the work in turn, turn you know, in, in working out years later, you know, where had these, you know, um, you know, properties gone in terms of, you know, um, you know, debt and who owned them and how to get them paid back. So it's, it's much, you know, and it was, as an administration, I think it was very successful because, you know, when companies go into administration, you know, the administrators um, try to sort of pay back the creditors, you know, mm -hmm. a certain amount of money and, you know, you normally talk about, you know, maybe getting back, you know, 40p in a pound, 70p in a pound, um, you know, in terms of paying back the credit to something. Yes. I think Lehman was in slightly um, unusual situation where it actually paid back more money than it owed. Time. Wow. So all the creditors got 100, I'm not going to say the number, but it was 100 next percent um, of the money they owed. And actually they had done quite well, but it just, it just took a long time. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, I could talk about this for hours, but I just want to come back, Sam, and really acknowledge something you said there about putting people first, you know, that kind of human-centric approach to people to get the best out of what you're trying to achieve as well, you know, so that I really commend that. Yeah, one of the things we are looking um, quite closely at, you know, just bring back to the present in, in, in Sport Radar, is a term which is called psychological safety. And that psychological safety of our, our, our developers, our, our testers, of our engineers. And, you know, I don't claim to be an expert um, on this, but I think the one element that resonated really fundamentally with me was, you know, you know yourself 
you're not in a psychological safe situation when your when your team kind of knows the answers but it's kind of too scared to tell you or their boss what the answer is because you know they fear that you're not going to take kindly to what they have to say because it you know mm. might clash with what I personally believe or, or whatever and you know you, you can think about what's happening in the world today and you can see that there's many people who have got a real issue with this where mm. they're just frightened to hear the truth um and i think that is so such a dangerous place to be both for the individual but also for the organization if actually you're only telling management what you think they want to hear and not what you actually know to be true or believe to be true is um yes. in fear of or, or fear of you know of being shouted at or whatever so i think if you know that's something which is really resonates me and I probably a lot of people at this current time yeah yeah fantastic that's great i was so, yeah psychological safety is something that we work on a lot uh, to make people to, to raise those voices that that have value you know and uh, and to allow people to bring out their creativity as well because uh, i've worked in environments where i haven't felt safe so again a fascinating topic so um i'm kind of going to ask you a question around yourself now um, ben sure. you know what what's the what's the thing what's your passion what drives you in the work that you do what makes you jump out of bed in the morning <laughs> normally my alarm clock um <laughs> but um i think there's a number of different things that really sort of you know fascinate me i mean i i love doing great tech and what I, and we can come on to what i mean by great tech so you know tech that doesn't fail you know i you know tech that can live up to um scaling you know 10 times 20 times more than it was meant to design to do in the first place um i love working with great people and you know and seeing people become great uh, as part of their journey um so i think you know a combination of you know interesting problems to solve and also great people i mean i feel i feel sometimes you know not ashamed but i feel it's a bit of a sorry that a lot of technology what people write today i, I would say it's quite dull you know it's in terms of tends to be at sort of acid transactions getting something from a database displaying on the screen and then updating the database you know there's not so much you can get passionate about about that um where i think our industry's got a lot more interesting is sort of, you know in the advent of ai and you know as for radio we use a lot of ai um because it's all about predicting predicting what's going to happen in the game you know who's mm. going to win you know um is there something funny going on about the game because we try to detect cheating in games you know, to keep keep um sports honest as a, wow. a big thing we do and i'd say this type of you know we've got ai or, or smart algorithms i think is you know is much simply much more interesting to work on rather than sort of you know fairly dull sort of acid transactions mm. in terms of getting things and putting things back into databases so yeah. i think you're know, working on challenging problems um with great people and great technology so that it, you know not having customer instance i think that's my bugbear is like when something fails and you know yes. the team's let down you know our customers are let down that kind of really makes me kind of yes. unhappy yes I, I i kind of recall back to to my engineering days where you know you'd walk away from a bit of software or engineering uh, uh work that you completed and you felt confident you know that kind of you felt clean that what you delivered was Gonna absolutely that, you know i love that yeah it's a, it's a sense of cleanliness or holiness you know one yes. of the two one of my um uh, one of my colleagues um you, you know is a great guy called Sean um he has this great saying which I'd like to share with you um share which is about that cleanliness and you know it's about what we he calls the mean time to innocence and mm. the mean time to innocence is is basically can be sort of summed up quite easily it's about that call you get at two o'clock in the morning 
when somebody from the sort of, you know, SOC or whatever has called you saying, you know, um, the system you're working on has gone down, right? And it's that, that we've all had that adrenaline rush going, oh my God, is it something I've done? Is it, is it the last change I've made that made the system go down? So quite simply put, mean time to innocence is basically all the observ observability, all the dashboards, all the testing you put in, so mm -hmm. that when you get that call, you can flip on your iPhone, look at your dashboard and go, no, it's all good with us. It must be the customer's issue or something else. Yes. Um, and I just think it's a great kind of thing for teams to strive for is, you know, again, to make safety, you know, to have that confidence to bring it back to your word that actually the systems are working, the customer experience is normal and, yeah. you know, basically nothing to see here. Excellent. That's really good. I love that. Again, on your kind of leadership, you know, what's your style of leadership? You kind of mentioned the real passion around people, uh, challenging problems. What, how do you roll as a leader? So I think, you know, and I don't claim any original thought in this, in this particular example, but I, I really sort of subscribe to, if that's the right word, I call servant leadership style, where, you know, my role as a leader is not to sort of, you know, sort of tell people what to do, um, you know, and not just to sort of bark instructions and orders, but basically look across my teams. And my responsibility, if you want that, is to try to, to make every of my reports, you know, direct reports and direct reports, the best that they can be. Mm. And by, by removing hurdles, so it's trying to spot what, what's kind of blocking them from progressing to the next level or, or, or just from carrying out their daily tasks. Yes. And, you know, whether it's sort of technical issues or whether it's um, organizational issues, just to use whatever kind of weight I have in the company to remove those obstacles. So I think you're doing your job as a, as a CTO if you're not thinking about yourself so much and you're thinking about your team and what, you know, what can you do to make that, you know, them succeed is mm. my leadership style. Fantastic. And did you find that switch between doing the do, doing the doing, to actually helping people do the doing through your kind of leadership? Was that, that kind of servant leadership, was that quite a hard switch for you? I think it's not a switch that happened overnight, for sure. You know, it kind of progresses over a series of roles where, you know, as a developer to begin with, you know, I used to be a, I think one of my first jobs was a C, a C programmer for oh, wow. um, um, the German Stock Exchange. Yes. Um, and, you know, and then progressing from being a sort of a developer to, you know, where it's all about doing, um, and then being a sort of, you know, a, a dev leader, which has been is about, you know, maybe 60, 70% about doing, and 30% of that coaching, mm. to being team lead, to being an architect. And when you get an architect, it's, you know, you're, you're already really on the slip of not actually doing, although yes. I still like to code um, as an architect. And so it's, it's a gradual transition, I think. And it, and I did go through a period of time about, I think everyone goes through this sort of anxiety, this moment of anxiety, um, when a leadership role is about, what should I be doing? Because you don't get told what to do. It's very rarely that my, you know, my boss, the CEO, um, will tell me what to do. So you've got to decide how you spend your days, how you spend your hours. And there's this constant anxiety about as many things as I could work on, what should I be working on? And through that kind of reflection, I think, you know, people come to different answers, I'm sure. But that's how I came through my answer that actually it's not about what I'm doing, it's about what I'm enabling other people to do. Yes. So it wasn't a kind of, I woke up one day and go, yeah. right, I've got it nailed. It's for, it's for a number of years, really. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very similar experience to myself, you know, that kind of transition away from uh, loving the tech. I still love the tech. In fact, I kind of miss it, actually. But, uh, you know, uh, getting into the kind of people, people space and seeing, you know, what other people need. The servant leadership you described. 
So Ben, is there anything as a, as a tech leader, because I imagine being a tech leader is quite a challenging job. It's a very difficult job. There's lots of variables and lots of things going on. What's the thing that keeps you up at night? So I, th I think one of the challenges that we have, um, because we're a growth, growth company, you know, we, we, we have historically been growing every year, year on year. Um, and although I'm not gonna make any predictions about the future because we're a listed company, um, you know, historically we have always been growing, always you know, we have some systems that have been doubling in terms of um, capacity, in terms of number of transactions they process. So I think, you know, it, it's making, getting that comfort that across all the different systems, and that's another thing that's for radar, we have so many different types of systems because of the range of services we provide, is making sure that each one of those systems have, you know, enough, I call it architecture run rate or capacity mm. ceiling. So about six months from now, or nine months from now, a year from now, you know, we're not going to go, well, shop's full, you know, come back, come come back tomorrow. We can't take any more requests. Mm. Yeah. And I, I, I generally, you know, looking at other companies, you know, which I've worked at, I think it's something which is, you know, often overmissed, you know, whether it's payments or, or whatever dom domain you're in. It's like, you know, I, I think if you ask many CTOs out there, they all been in, had experiences when, you know, we only knew what a capacity ceiling is when the system fell over. Mm. And systems fall over at peak capacity it's probably at, from a custom from a business point of view it's probably when the the, the, the business having a, the best day right you know whether it's so you know i can remember when i was working at world pay it'd always be kind of um chinese singles day which mm. is you know um 11 of november one 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 mm. and you know the systems would do you know five times six times more transactions than, than they normally would do and you know you, you just can't afford to have that type of failure on that day Mm. So I think always knowing where your capacity ceilings are and being confident that you know where your capacity ceilings are is, is you know, something which should keep any CTO awake. Yeah. And yeah, on that topic, you know, testing those what I call big, I would you call them misuse cases or use cases of the of the system. Well, how do you test that? So we've had a previous guest on around Netflix where they would actually switch off an entire kind of server farm, you know, and see what happened. You know, they, they would actually kind of go through the motions, which I thought was quite an interesting take. I mean, how do you test big stuff like that? So, yeah, I think I mean that example from Netflix, you know, is a great example. But you have to have a real level of maturity. Um, and confidence before you can start, you know, turning things off in production. If you want to keep a job, that is a CTO. <laughs> so I think, you know, if we assume that most companies aren't at a level of maturity, so I think a pertinent question is, like, well, how do you start? And I think most of your kind of listeners would be, you know, quite au fait um, with the concept of, you know, continuous integration, continuous test, where, you know, basically you're testing the functionality of your code hasn't changed, you know, from one commit to the, to the, ne to the next. Fewer companies, you know, uh, I can say this is unconfidence having sort of, you know, audited um, or, you know, done tech due diligence on quite a few 20, 30 companies in my, in, in my life. Um, only about four or five of those 30 companies I've audited um, have ever done work or continuous performance tests where every night, you know, when people go home, they'll, they'll, you know, create an environment from scratch, you know, using infrastructure as code and all of the things like that. And not just test, you know, they run the functional test first to make sure there's no kind of functional bugs being, you know, cut in as continuous integration testing, but then actually run a load test, a stress test. Um, and it's not as hard as it seems, but very few people actually do it, you know, as far as I can see, because you don't necessarily have to test on the same scale as your production environments, um, which you would generally do or try to do in, in a classical performance test. Mm. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to see if there's been a, a change from yesterday, 
so you can scale up a, a scaled representation of your environment. You know, nowadays with um, public cloud, this becomes incredibly easy if you if you if you if you done it properly. Mm. Um, and you, you basically just try to check about you know have I the number of TPS transactions per second I can do has that has that just gone down ten percent? What 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 did I do yesterday to make the ceiling capacity shrink by ten percent? Was that just or does the latency now take five minutes when it used to take twenty seconds? And you're just trying to see a, a, a trend, a, a shift mm. in yesterday's behavior. And that's why you don't need to do it at full scale. You can do it at half scale or quarter scale. But I mean, it's all about shortening the feedback cycle. You know, that's yeah. what you're trying to do. You know, you don't want to find this on your on your busiest day. Yes. You, to, you know, you want to find it as quickly as you as when the error or the change in the system was made. That's right. I love so that's where I would start. Yeah, I love this idea of getting those feedback loops because I mean that actually invigorates the whole development engineering kind of uh, system as well. Because you know, if you're getting that feedback, then I don't know, it just seems to kind of colour the work that you're doing. Well, I, I think all of all efficient development is all about feedback loops. You know, if you look at this sort of the agile process about you know whether it's getting rapid feedback from customers yes. or whether it's getting rapid feedback from you know from the from, from, from the business, you know, but, or whether you're getting rapid feedback from your unit tests, you know, which you know the feedback cycles could be like twenty as short as twenty seconds. Mm. Um, efficient development is all about shortening the feedback loop, and it's just a question of well, which feedback loop are we talking about? Fantastic. Now, coming coming back to your teams and your kind of leadership and getting the best out of your teams, um, you know, and, and delegating. Any kind of tips? Any kind of big tips that you got around getting the best out of your people to create the best teams for you to make your life easier and for the, cost, the end customer? On an individual level, team members, find out. You know, we all have things we you know we're good at or think we're good at, and we all have things which we know we're we either not very good at or just simply don't enjoy doing it. But I think as a leader, it's, it's finding out, understanding what really excites people. Because I really feel that people will do their best work, right, if they're doing something they enjoy. Mm. And so, you know, you, you know, you get a much better outcome from them, they'll, they'll grow more, but also you get a much better outcome from a company. If you can orientate them in things that um, they do well, and also then make sure that that's recognised. It's recognised within, you know, as a manager, but it's also recognised in the team. Yes. You know, I think we don't do a good enough job on, on celebrating success. And as a failure, we're all over it. Right? Yes. Everyone is. Yeah. But how many times do you actually celebrate success? Um, you know, and it's kind of bad. Yeah, absolutely. On organisational growth, you've worked for many companies. You've got lots of experience of lots of different companies. You've seen uh, m- many things that have worked and what have you. What are the things, uh, Ben, that you put in place uh, to an organisation, for example, if you were joining uh, another one now and it was in growth, you know, and uh, what do you think are the good foundations to put in place? Um, I think before putting in anything, anything in, you've got to see what there's, what's fair to begin with. And let me give you an example of what I mean, is you've got to look where the company is in terms of its journey. So there can be many, you know, uh, we're a sort of X thousand, you know, people company and we're in growth but mm. the companies of 20 also have maybe more growth than and we have and so you know you, you, there's not just one strategy for a growth company you've got to see where in a maturity curve that, that company lies i think one of the most common things i see which is uh, a warning bell for myself is that you know i've been in companies which have bought smaller companies which have been really really successful startups for example you know you know they've, they've got the eye of a big company because they're doing, they're smashing a ball out of the park 
mm. um, of what we do, you know, whether it's payments or whether it's something else, it doesn't really matter. And that's great. You, you know, you acquire the company. Um, and what you see is, and you know, you, you, you need to invest in that company to help it grow. And what I think I've seen number one number of times, whether that works or not, really does, depends less on the technology and the systems and depends more on the management team that's been, being, you know, brought into the, the mothership, as you want to call it, the, 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 our company. And I think the danger is that all the practices and processes that had made that small company great, will the management hang on to those practices? Because I, I really believe that there's a certain reflect, you know, reflection point that when you know you get from 20 developers to let's say 60, 70 developers in that kind of range, mm. um, all the practices which the, the management did, which were very, very successful, are going to be the exact same practices which will be their Achilles heel. Yes. And they actually have to abandon them. And if they don't abandon them, and it's hard. I mean, I, I really feel for these people because you know we all have learned behavior and we all have a tendency to um, you know, repeat the strategies that have been successful in the past. But there comes a certain point in growth where those strategies just don't work. I'll, I'll give one example, but there's many more. Is like, you know, in, in, you know, what makes smaller companies agile, you know, in terms of, you know, business agility mm. is ability to make quick decisions, yes. right? Undoubtedly. But there comes a point where having a single decision maker is not going to scale and that will come a single point of bottleneck by a person but can you convince that person that that's not his role anymore mm. um and you know he has to be very brave as a leader to embrace new behaviors behaviors which you know he doesn't know have ever worked for him yes and you know it, it's sad to see that some people you know, some leaders who've done very well in, in, in making a company, growing a company, you know, from, you know, from zero to 20 to 40, fall off at this point. They fall off a cliff because they're unable to let go of all that learned behavior that made them great, yes. but actually won't work at scale. So before doing anything, you want to examine if something like this is going on or, or something else. I think, you know, organizational structures, you know, how many, how many of us have been through organizational structures, which you know, either started but then stopped, rolled back, started and stalled, <laughs> or, or, or started and completed, but it was like almost like lipstick on a pig, where you know, you know, you, you know, the, the, the organizational structure, you know, worked very nicely in PowerPoint, but actually it's the old structure um, mm. that carried on working on, on the ground. So I think organizational change is extremely hard. I think this is a a really interesting thing you kind of mentioned there around organizations where on paper you've changed them or you have an intention to change them but in reality right the reality is is that it's not changing and it stays the same i've had experience around this any kind of tips around uh bringing people on board to to be part of that change i guess or even the designers of that change well i, I think you know there's there's people far wiser and greater than myself who, who, who've written a lot, written, written a lot on sort of you know, change management. And all I can do is you know talk about things that really resonated with myself. Um, so one of the things was you know I think it was called the change equation. And um, forgive me if I get some of the details wrong, so I don't claim to be a sort of you know, psychologist or anything else. Mm. But one of the things about making change happen, you know, there's some fairly obvious things when someone goes through a change equation, which is you know. Um, knowing where you are, yeah, okay, I can understand that. Um, knowing where you want to go to, um, you know, in terms of a, a, a vision, a target state, yeah, that's fairly, fairly, all fairly obvious. And that's the The thing which was new to me when somebody introduced this to me is the first step is 
make you know you have to have pain people won't change if they're too comfortable yeah. you know if your organization it doesn't have to be individual pain i'm not saying same with torture instruments but if your organization's not in pain or your team's not in pain then it's going to be no incentive to change whatsoever so maybe it's a case of not creating pain but just sort of you know shining a spotlight on on what you see observers pain and go look this is pain and it's you know it's caused by this mm. you know this is where we are and if you go over to this kind of model we'll get rid of that pain so i think it's about you know i would never say advocate you know deliberately causing pain to a team or a person mm. but it's nothing leader just to shine a spotlight on it and saying that there is this pain just yeah. recognize it for what it is it doesn't have to be like this it can be better yes i love it that's great so ben as we come towards the closing arc of our time together unfortunately i've got some nice warm questions to ask you any advice to aspiring tech leaders that listen to this of things that they could do to maybe accelerate their journey to tech leadership or things to avoid i think the first thing is about kind of roles and what roles you do um don't do one particular role for too long a time and that can be quite painful because you know you can really enjoy what you're doing and there's nothing wrong with 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 carrying on doing that role until the day that you retire but mm. if the question is about you know if you want to be you know to you know pursue a role in the technical leadership and that's not what you're in today then i think you know, a variety of roles is important so um a strong technical background you know in you know having been a, a tester and developer I, i i would recommend um a stint in architecture um you know particularly solutions architecture rather than our architecture um the spins i think is mm. is 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 very well um understanding the economics holding being a budget holder um you know this is important if you can be a, a, a cio maybe less important if you want to aim towards a cto it depends so it's about having a multi you know having many strings to your bow i i i think rather than just trying to be the best developer you know rather than spending like you know 10 plus years just in development make sure you kind of do a tour of duty in, yes. in different roles so that you can give your um your your human resources or people department or your ceo the confidence that you're multidimensional yeah i love it great advice and are there any books films poems even that have been defining in your journey to where you are now or poems I'm, i'm afraid not but i i think there's 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 one book which has resonated a lot with me and it's it's um the wisdom of crowds um um by a guy called james and i, I apologize if i'm going to pronounce his name wrong but it seems to be suriaki or you can probably edit that in but wisdom of crowds it's, it's an unusual book name and what what that you know it's very interesting because it gives many many different examples why where diversity of opinion will lead to much better decision making and why that's an interesting book is you know it's interesting on many levels but why it's interesting in in in, in you know the context of leadership is really the understanding that you know you'll have a better development team you'll have a better testing team or whatever discipline it is you have a better architecture team the more diverse that team is and you know i've been really proud to help sponsor um something which we call the women in tech movement which is promoting um women in technology we were in poland a few weeks ago it you know not only is it the right thing to do on an individual level and for society level you know if it, if you need any more you shouldn't need any more reason than that to promote diversity in teams but if you want a selfish re- reason you're just going to have better business outcomes brilliant love it 
absolutely agree with you. In fact, I was going to give a shout out to IT Labs, the kind of uh, the sponsor of this podcast, is that 80 plus percent of our leadership are women. And uh, and I didn't realise this because it doesn't really matter to me who's my leader, but it's an interesting uh, interesting take uh, on on the importance of having diversity and, and the, I don't know, the kind of... Uh, ideas and uh, creativity that kind of comes from that and different styles of leadership as well which i think are very uh, well serving to all absolutely i can't stress it enough you know we 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 need and, and diversity should say that diversity is not just in in, in gender um mm. there's diversity comes in so neurotypical diversity and you know it's equally important having people that you know we're always very tolerant of having people on on, on the spectrum because not because it's just the right thing to do, which it is, mm. but just because it brings another factor of diversity into the team, another way of solving problems, another way of thinking together. So I think, you know, I, I would leave you with that thought is yes. diversity is not just about gender, yeah. but the more diversity you can get into, the better your, your team's going to perform. That's right, absolutely. And just kind of make it a little bit about myself for a second. Uh, eccentric people have a place in organisations, you know, we kind of bring a different energy. Because this is absolutely. an interesting, uh, you know, uh, I think you're absolutely right. There's lots of different ways in which people can be. And allowing people to express who they really are and their kind of their own style is is uh, is wonderful to see as well. It colours the workplace. So I'm going to be a tech genie for a second, Ben, okay? We're at that time of the podcast where I offer you a wish for your industry, for your leadership, Anything you want, what would you wish for? I, I think sort of understanding is that you know, yes, you know, we often say it's all about it's all about tech, it's all about engineering, but let us not forget, you know, the, the, the things at the heart of tech are those carbon-based units, the, you know, the, the people, and you know, just just a shout out to all those people, you know, who are leading teams, be they big or small, look after the people because they'll look after you in the end. Word up, absolutely great. And as a final note, I've got a feeling that was a pretty good final note. But as we come to the full stop of our podcast together, what would be your key takeaway to our tech leaders out there? Stop calling yourself IT. We are engineers. And the difference is that engineers, engineering leads or informs the business where IT has a has a sort of, you know, you know, kind of supports the business. More and more today, you know, if you take away engineering from a business, there is no business. So a big shout out for those people who call themselves, you know, whatever the discipline, first and foremost, be proud of being an engineer Beautiful. and stop using the IT label. Brilliant. Great note to finish on. Thank you for your time, Ben. It's been great having you on CTO Confessions. Thank you. Well, that was a conversation filled with so many great takeaways, which I will share shortly. What a great journey that Ben has been on and what an intriguing company that he arrived at. Real-time data streaming with abstractions of that data being provided for different use cases. So what were your key takeaways? These were mine. Number one, Ben's great advice about putting people first. I think often in leadership we forget this, especially when we start referring to people in unhelpful terms. It may sound trivial, but I have a strong belief that the language we use sets the approach we enact. Never depersonalise the greatest assets all businesses have, which is their people. My second key takeaway is about the mean time to innocence. What a great term that Ben referred to. 
Having the groundwork in place, i.e. dashboards, monitoring systems, logs, etc., to know how confident you are with the system that when problems arise, one can quickly ascertain where the challenge is. I can see how this helps make the tech leader's life a lot easier and helps them sleep at night with confidence. The return on investment in putting these measures in place is a big one. The feedback loops and indicators, in my opinion, help mature the organisation in lots and lots of ways, particularly in terms of its resilience. My third and final key takeaway that I'm going to share here is about the importance of diversity in all its forms, i.e. how to create sharp cutting edge teams and the organisation as a whole. I'm glad Ben celebrate this as it's a common theme with the wisdom of many leaders I've been fortunate enough to speak to. Diversity in organisations in all its forms is very important. So thank you Ben for your time. Thank you for sharing your wisdom in the short time we had together. And well done to your teams at Sports Radar for creating a fascinating solution in the market. Thank you again, Ben. And finally, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Lab services, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long, live well and prosper. Until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.